Thank you, Ben. All right, everybody. It, uh, it's, again, it is so awesome. You have no idea how strange and awesome it is to stand here on a Sunday morning and preach. Isn't that a weird thing to think about? I mean, I'd kind of gotten to this groove of preaching on Thursday nights or Friday nights. And, uh, but I, it was so nice Thursday. I texted uh, Matt and Cleve, and I said, you know what? It's Thursday night, and I'm not preaching, and I'm glad. Because I want to be preaching on Sunday morning to a congregation here in the building. And it is so good to see your faces and to know that you're here and you're real. And I've not laid eyes on some of you in a while. And, uh, and, and it's, a, it's a blessing to be here. Thank you all. Thank you for what you're going to be doing next week to help everybody come into worship. To those who are listening and watching online, uh, please take out your Bibles and turn to Genesis 50. We are thankful that you're worshiping with us too. And we know that many of you are... Or like me, you can't wait to be back here in the building. And I know many of you are going to come next Sunday. Some of you I know are going to have to wait and come in a few more weeks, and that's all right. Uh, we, we will welcome you and be glad to have you when you can come. So Genesis chapter 50, we are completing the story, the saga of Joseph today. Um, just a quick recap. Remember, Joseph started out... He was living in the in, in just uh, he was a center of his universe, right? I mean, he was really living in the lap of luxury. Jacob was a wealthy man, and he had a luxurious royal coat that his dad had given him. He was daddy's favorite. God had blessed him with these amazing gifts and and the gift of uh, dreams and the gift of dream interpretation. But then from there, from that good life that Joseph had, he entered into this wild roller coaster ride of ups and downs and twists and turns. Uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Joseph experienced all of it. His brothers hated him. They sold him into, into slavery in Egypt. But God was with Joseph every step of the way. He never left Joseph, never forgot about Joseph when other people did. And God ended up using everything that Joseph experienced to orchestrate his life-saving, world-changing plan. And so Joseph ended up in prison, and then he ended up in Pharaoh's court, and he was placed second in command of all of Egypt. He was coordinating all of the relief efforts for the famine that was coming, and then when it finally came. But Joseph's greatest challenge, his final challenge, is when his brother showed back up looking to buy grain, and Joseph had to decide, do I forgive and forget, or do I exact my, revenge, my, my vengeance on them? What do I do? I'm this powerful official. My brothers are bowing before me. But Joseph passed that test with flying colors because he chose forgiveness. He chose to restore the relationship that he had with his brothers, and he chose to be reunited with his dad. And so last week we left the story with Jacob and Joseph reunited. The family has moved to Egypt, and they're there living with Joseph, enjoying the favor of Pharaoh and all the Egyptian people. And they lived like that for 17 wonderful years. And then Jacob died. So we come to Genesis chapter 50, and Joseph is, is able to look back over his life. He's able to see the providential presence of the Lord at work through all of it. And, and when we follow the Lord's leading, when we are trusting his heart and his hand, even though we are walking through dark valleys, even though we're riding on rough waters, we will discover that His good, pleasing, and perfect will has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled through us and in us. That's what Joseph is able to experience here. He's able to see the blessings of God even as he's having to say goodbye to his dad and lay him to rest. And it's a, it's a great moment of grief and loss. But Joseph has the right perspective here. Don't we all want to face 
the trials of life, the, the dark valleys, the, the storms, with that kind of wisdom, grace, and discernment that we see, Joseph, that we heard in our Old Testament reading. We, we all long to have that kind of perspective. George W. Bush once said, Grief and tragedy and hatred are only for a time. Goodness, remembrance, and love have no end. And Joseph chose to embrace the latter. And how did he do it? Well, Genesis 48 through 50, these last chapters, they revolve around Jacob's blessing of his sons and then what I call three funerals, three burials. And the end of Joseph's story reveals how we can lay aside grief and tragedy and hatred and we can live lives of love and goodness and remembrance. So the first part of this chapter we see is this first funeral, this first burial is burying a beloved father. Joseph has to bury a beloved father. We're going to actually start in chapter 49, verse 33. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Joseph threw himself upon his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days For that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I'm about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up. And bury your father as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him. The dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt. Besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household, only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at that threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre, which Abraham had bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite, along with the field. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. Jacob spent most of the previous two chapters speaking. If you read chapters 48 and 49, it's mainly Jacob talking. He's giving blessings to his sons and his grandsons. He's giving instructions. And Jacob said all that he needed to say, drew himself into bed, and entered into glory with his son standing around him. Jacob left behind a very unique legacy that continues to this day. The beginnings of a great nation. The testimony of what God can do with imperfect people who strive to live by faith. As the writers of of Hebrews uh, put it, Jacob, it's like he exchanged that pilgrim tent for a heavenly home. And that's what awaits all of us who follow Jesus by faith. We're imperfect. We know that. 
And thank the Lord, our eternal destiny does not reside in our goodness, right? It's not about our perfection, because none of us would make it. God's grace and mercy is freely given to anyone and everyone who turns from sin and puts their trust in Jesus Christ. He knows we're weak. He's not surprised by our faults and our failings. And someday we too will be welcomed home by God. And I know you're like me. You long for the day when you're going to hear Jesus himself say, Well done, good and faithful servant. And I know so many good and faithful servants who have gone ahead of me. They're like a cloud of witnesses, Hebrews says. Cheering us on, encouraging us as we run the race that's set before us. For each of the godly men and women that I've had the privilege of burying, even family and friends that I've had to lay to rest, there are three tasks that I've had to do. That's true for all of us. There are three necessary tasks for us to bury our beloveds, whoever they may be to us, family or friends, spouses or parents, children or brothers and sisters in Christ. We must do these three things if we're to have Joseph's perspective moving forward. The first is we must grieve. And we see that Joseph did that, right? In verse 1 and verses 10 through 11, we see the grief. Queen Elizabeth II said, Grief is the price we pay for love. I love that. Someone else said, Grief is the last act of love we can give to those we loved. Where there is deep grief, there was great love. Yes, grief is a normal part of life. But as I always say whenever I'm conducting a funeral of a believer, we don't grieve as the rest of mankind who has no hope. We grieve, yes. We mourn. We shed tears. We experience the pain of loss. We understand that death is an enemy. It's the last enemy that will be destroyed. It robs us of someone dear, and we feel that pain for a long time. But in that pain, in that grief, we grieve with hope because we know this is not the end. It's a transition to an eternal story. Here in the... In, in Joseph's story, we see him weep. This is the sixth time that we've seen Joseph weep. And it was no quiet affair. He didn't allow his high position to stifle the, the deep emotions that he was feeling. He threw himself upon his father just as he had done Benjamin, just as he had done his brothers at their family reunion. And later when the funeral procession came to Canaan, Joseph led a a week-long public mourning for his dad right there on the banks of the Jordan River. When somebody we love dies, God expects us to weep. He expects us to cry. That's why He gave us the ability to shed tears. Tears are part of the healing process. The Bible speaks about crying a lot. Uh, Psalm 56 talks about how weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning, that grieving with hope. Psalm 126, 5-6 says, Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Though one goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed, he will surely come back with shouts of joy, carrying his sheaves. The Bible says that God actually keeps record of our tears. It's as if He puts them into a bottle. He cherishes them. We know that Jesus wept at the grave of His friend Lazarus. We know that He openly wept over the city of Jerusalem as He rode in because He knew the judgment that was coming to it. In my pastoral ministry, I've learned that people who suppress their grief, who hold back those tears, they're in danger of developing even worse emotional and physical 
issues down the road. Tears are a gift of God. They help us through our suffering and our grief. We must grieve. Secondly, we must prepare. Now, Jacob, Jacob had prepared both himself and his family for his death. This is a good example for us to follow. This is something that we, not the ones grieving, do so much. This is what we do ahead of time. In chapter 47, Jacob privately instructed Joseph about his wishes. He wanted to be buried in Canaan in the grave he dug next to his beloved Rachel. And he later repeated these same instructions to the rest of his sons. And so there could be no disagreements about the matter because everything had been settled in advance. Why is it that we'll make such detailed plans for a vacation? We'll do all kinds of preparations for a business trip. But for that final and greatest journey, we don't want to make any plans? Why is that? Jacob told his sons where he wanted to be buried. He put Joseph in charge of carrying out his wishes. Previous instruction plus a dependable person in charge kept everything running smoothly. Again, from my experience as a pastor, and I know those in our congregation who are a part of of funerals and burials can testify to this. It's a gift to your loved ones when you can plan this stuff out in advance. It can make the difference between drawing a family closer together or driving a wedge between them because people don't always make the best decisions when they're grieving. We don't. We can spare our family so much heartache by being honest about our own mortality and making those plans. It's not pleasant. It's not fun. That's one of the reasons why people don't buy life insurance, right? Because they don't want to think about it. Who wants to think about their own death? But it's the loving and right thing to do. We must prepare. And the final thing is we must show respect. We see this in verses 7 through 13. Except for the smallest children and their, and their herds and their flocks, everybody, the whole family traveled from Egypt to Canaan to pay their last respects to their patriarch. Now, you can imagine that kind of a journey, how inconvenient it was, how difficult it was, dangerous even, but it was the right thing to do. Now, this season of social distancing... You know, I know it has made it more difficult for people to grieve. Plans and wishes, those, those plans that were made, they can't necessarily be carried out the way the person wanted them to be. It's harder to pay our respects and show our sympathy when we can't go to a funeral, when we can't go to a visitation and hug people's necks. But, you know, I pray that this temporary situation that we're in right now won't lead to our distancing ourselves from people in grief going forward. That's one of my worries and fears. I pray that we won't forget those who have lost loved ones and failed to provide the comfort and encouragement that they need. Verse 13 here suggests that the whole company didn't go into the land of Canaan to the cave at Machpelah, but Jacob, his 12 sons did. They served as pallbearers. They carried his body to its final resting place. I love that image, that picture of that journey they made together, that journey through grief. Listen, we're all on the way to the grave together, right? All of us are, whether we want to think about it or not. Death and sorrow, it should bring people together because we're on the journey together. Isaac and Ishmael were brought together when they had to bury Abraham. Jacob and Esau were brought together when they had to bury Isaac. And Joseph and his brothers... 
the hope and the prayers that they're brought together as they're going to lay to rest Israel. Now, this is Joseph's first time returning to his homeland in uh, 39 years. And it's sad that he had to do that to bury his dad. But he didn't linger long in Canaan because God had given Joseph a job to do in Egypt. And that's where he belonged, with his family, doing the work that he had given him. And so that brings us to the second part of this story. He not only had to bury a beloved father, he had to bury a painful past. Let's look at verse 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrong things we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. They're kind of laying it on thick, aren't they? When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And then he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. So after Joseph and his family returned to Egypt, they never forgot Jacob. They never stopped grieving, because you never really do. You never stop grieving. You learn how to live with the grief. Acknowledge the loss. But then like Joseph and his brothers did, you have to get back home. You have to get back to life, to working, to serving, to caring for those that are still in your life. And that's exactly what Joseph and his brothers did. But there was still some lingering damage. That journey to bury Jacob didn't really bring the brothers together like we would hope and pray that it did. Joseph was still a powerful official in Egypt. His brothers were still living on his land. They were playing on his turf. And now that dad was no longer there, they started to worry that things might change with Joseph. What if Joseph was being kind and compassionate to us only for dad's sake? What if he's going to turn on us and get us back finally for all the things we did to him? Now, if you're like me and you read that, you get angry. It makes me angry. Because I look at them and I say, what's wrong with you guys? I mean, Joseph bent over backwards to forgive you, to embrace you, to kiss you, to weep over you, to treat you like royalty. Look at all that he gave you. What more does the man have to do to let you know he forgave you? But for whatever reason, they doubted Joseph's love. They doubted the sincerity of his forgiveness. The loving and gracious ways that he spoke to them and treated them, it just never really made a lasting impact on their hearts. And after all that Joseph had done to encourage them, really it's unjust. It's a slap in the face. It's an insult for his brothers to say, I think Joseph's probably going to hate us and repay us now that dad's gone. Really, this doesn't reveal anything about Joseph's heart. This reveals their hearts, doesn't it? It tells you a lot about their psyche. You know, we often do that. We often suspect in other people what we'd do ourselves if we had the opportunity. So this reveals to us that if the tables had been turned, they probably would get back at Joseph. We do this, don't we? When we doubt God's Word, when we question God's love, when we give up hope for the future... That's what we're guilty of. 
Faith, hope, and love go together. And when we're doubting God's love, we lose hope. We lose our faith. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears has not reached perfection in love. Joseph's brothers had nothing to fear. Joseph loved them so completely. Joseph didn't want to punish them. He had already forgiven them for their past sins. What these brothers should have done was to take the time to consider all that Joseph had said to them. They should have thought about all the things that Joseph had done for them that he didn't have to do. Because he demonstrated in so many tangible ways his love, his forgiveness. He had given them every reason to believe that he had forgotten their past sins. But their love was far from perfect. Their love was lacking. Their appreciation and understanding of Joseph's love for them was weak. But again, Joseph's brothers are really no different than a lot of professing Christians today who are constantly worrying about God's judgment, whether or not he's really forgiven them, whether they're really his children or not. How can we know that God loves us and forgives us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ? How can we know that no matter what I've done, no matter what I might do tomorrow, God has forgiven me and loves me? Again, 1 John tells us in chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from some unrighteousness. From all unrighteousness. He's faithful. If we confess, He's going to forgive. He's going to cleanse. In 1 John 5, 13, John says, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. There's no guesswork. There's no wondering. There's no waiting until you get to the end and God has to kind of weigh it out, the good and the bad. That's what Islam teaches. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is, if you've confessed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've asked Him to forgive you of your sins, you can know that you're saved. You can know that you're forgiven. Can I get an amen? All right, thank you all. I've not heard an amen in here in a long time. That certainly, there's nothing worth amen and it's, it's that. So how do we, how do we feel and, and how we feel and what God says are two different things, right? Because listen, there are days I don't feel very Christian. There are situations I'm in that I look at and I think, I didn't handle that the way I should have handled it. That was not a very Christian way to say that or to do that. So what I feel and what God's Word says are two different things. And I would rather put my hope and trust in the unchanging Word of God than in my fickle emotions. Because my emotions, they come and they go. But what Joseph's brothers do in their apprehension is they concoct this story. We have no indication that Jacob ever said this. It really goes against, I think, what Jacob would have thought about his son Joseph. Because he only saw Joseph, you know, you know, he was the perfect son, right? So I don't think Jacob said this. I think the brothers just made this story up because they still believed that Joseph had no real love for them. So how did Joseph respond? When the message came to him, it says Joseph wept. He was deeply hurt that his own brothers didn't believe his words. They didn't accept his kind deeds at face value as true expressions of his love and forgiveness. What more can he do to convince them? As we sang this morning, we have a good, good Father. That's who He is. 
His love is undeniable. And because of his love, because of what Jesus did for us on Calvary's cross, we can know that we are loved by him. We can bury our painful past. Because that's who we are. It's not our past. It's who, we, it's who he says we are. It's who we are in Christ. It's not our sins. It's not our faults. It's not our failings. We are His beloved sons and daughters because we've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You know, one of the reasons we need to come together, one of the reasons why we can't just do church virtually indefinitely, we've got to come together. We've got to worship and study God's Word together. We've got to see baptisms and participate in the Lord's Supper because it reminds ourselves, it enables us to remind each other of the assurance of God's love and mercy and grace for us. We need that. So Joseph summoned his brothers to his house to do just that. And when they came, they fell at his feet again. Their final bow in, in fulfillment of those prophetic dreams. And like the story of the prodigal son, they just couldn't accept free forgiveness. It was expecting too much. Remember the story of the prodigal son? The son was on his way home to his dad, and he was rehearsing this speech about, Dad, I'll be your servant. You know, you can, you know, I'll live with the servants in their house, and I, I'm not worthy to be your son. And that's what they say. They throw themselves at Joseph's feet, and they say, We're your slaves. We are your servants. Again, they could not accept the fact that Joseph could just freely forgive them. And a lot of people think that that's the way God is. And that they've got to come back to God begging and pleading and making all these promises. There are people who think that they have to earn their way into God's good graces. Oh, I've got to go to church and I've got to give and I've got to do this and I've got to stop doing that and I've got to do all these things like that so that God will love me. That's not the way it works. It's backwards. Listen to what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says. For it is by grace. Grace is God's free favor. It's a free gift. It's something you can't earn or deserve. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works. So that no one can boast. The change, the works, the, the, the demonstrations of your faith through baptism, that comes after you've already turned from your sin and put your trust in Jesus. It's after you've experienced His grace that those other things come. We put the cart before the horse sometimes. See, the only people that God can forgive are those who admit and confess that they're sinners. There's nothing they can do to earn God's love. Whether it's the woman at the well, whether it's Zacchaeus, the little tax collector up in the tree, whether it's, it's, it's the woman caught in adultery or the thief on the cross, all sinners have to admit their guilt, abandon their proud efforts at their own salvation, and humbly receive the gift of God's grace and mercy. And how does God, when, when the doubts come, when Satan whispers in our ears, when we don't feel very Christian some days, how does God assure us that He has indeed forgiven us and forgotten our sins? He does it through His Word. That's what Joseph does. Joseph speaks a word to his brothers. He says, don't be afraid. He says that twice. He comforted them. He spoke kindly to them. And that's what God does for his children. When we read and hear the word of God, when we humbly receive the word and plant it in our souls and we trust it, we can know the assurance of God's love and forgiveness. 
Isaiah 12, 2 says, Behold, God is my salvation. He's my salvation, not me, not what I do, Him. And so I can trust and not be afraid. Joseph didn't minimize their sins. God doesn't minimize our sins. When you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, there's no doubt God does not minimize our sins. He paid the ultimate price for our sins. The wrath of God was poured out on His Son because that's what we deserve. Joseph doesn't minimize his brother's sin. He doesn't excuse them away. He freely admitted, you intended to harm me. He knew there had been evil in their hearts. But that's the beauty of the gospel. That's what Jesus does. He overrules our evil desires. And he uses even the worst of things to accomplish his good. He takes the, the, the brutality and the ugliness of Good Friday and he turns it into the beauty and the new life of Easter Sunday. Amen? That's what he does. It's like what Peter said to the crowd on Pentecost Sunday. He said, Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Warren Wiersbe put it this way, out of the greatest sin ever committed by humankind, God brought the greatest blessing that ever came to humankind. And just as Joseph forgave and assured his brothers, so God forgives and assures us. Joseph said, I've provided for you and your children. And Jesus provides for all of our needs out of the riches of his grace and mercy. And that brings us to the third part, burying a special brother. As we wrap up here, the story in Genesis, beginning in verse 22. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all of his father's family. He lived 110 years, saw the third generation of Ephraim's children, and also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. We can rejoice. Because we are God's children, we can rejoice that our sins have been laid to rest. We can forgive each other. We can bury the painful past we have with other people because we have experienced the grace of God. That's what Joseph and his brothers were finally able to do. And because of that, Joseph was able to die and leave a legacy for his family that I think all of us would want to leave. And that's a two-part legacy. It's a legacy of faith and a legacy of family. And we see here at the beginning of these verses that legacy of family that, that Joseph was able to know his, his sons, his grandsons, his great-grandsons. He was able to, to bless them, to extend that blessing. And it wasn't just a sentimental thing for, for Joseph. For Joseph, this idea of leaving a, a family legacy was about fulfilling the promise that God had made to Abraham. This was an act of obedience to God, to love his family well to take care of their needs, to be a blessing to them. We should all want to leave that kind of legacy for our family. That we have done everything we can to honor them, to love them, to forgive them, to bless them. And one of the greatest ways that we can bless our family is with a legacy of faith. As we help to make sure that our brothers and sisters, our children and grandchildren, know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. 
Joseph left a legacy. If I think about this, Joseph spent all those years, 17 plus years, living in Egypt, a pagan, surrounded by pagan culture. They didn't share the values of the people of God. They didn't worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph didn't have any church to go to. He didn't have any online sermons to to watch and listen to. He didn't have any resources, no one to encourage him in his faith. He clung to that faith. He stood strong on the promise, those dreams God had given him, that they would come true. He didn't give in. He didn't compromise. He stayed true to his faith. And so the story of, of Joseph ends in a weird place, in a coffin in Egypt. You may think, well, that's a strange way to end an epic tale, right? To end this story about Jacob. That here he is, uh, you know, ending his life, and, and he's placed in a coffin in Egypt, and that's the end of the book. You know what I like to think about? I like to think about those children of Israel generations later, when they were no longer living as legal residents, now they were slaves under a new Pharaoh, and they could look over to that coffin and know that's where Joseph is buried. And they remembered because Joseph, just as he told his brothers, his brothers did what they promised, they passed on to their children and their grandchildren and future generations that Joseph didn't want to stay in Egypt. Joseph, even in his death, clung to the promise that God was going to deliver his people and take them back to that land he promised Abraham. And that through his descendants, all the world would be blessed. Joseph believed that. He had faith in that. And sure enough, when Moses leads the children of Israel out of out of Egypt in the Exodus, you know what they take with them? Joseph's body. And he is buried in Shechem, which happens to be the capital uh, for the region and where Ephraim and Manasseh are Joseph's sons. The beautiful, fitting, final resting place for his body. You know, sometimes we feel like that we're in a coffin in Egypt. But we've got to have faith that this is not the end, that God is going to be true to his word, and he's going to see us through. You know, I want to leave that kind of a legacy. It starts with having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you confessed your sins to Him and stopped trying to earn God's love and grace for yourself, but instead to trust that Jesus wants to give you a fresh start and a second chance? If not, I pray you would do that today. I pray you'd turn from your sin and put your trust in Him. Turn from your pride and your self-reliance and receive His grace and mercy. Maybe for us, God has laid on our heart a family member that we need to bury the hatchet with. Somebody we need to put the painful past to rest and move on. Maybe there's somebody that has been trying to forgive you and you've been prideful and you've been resistant and you've not trusted that they are really going to forgive you. Maybe you just need to be humble enough to say, you know what, I'm going to trust them. I'm going to receive their forgiveness. I'm going to move on in grace. Whatever God has laid on your heart this morning, we're going to pray and we're going to sing. And whether you're home or you're here, I pray you would respond to whatever God has laid on your heart. And if you want to send us a message, send us an email, uh, let us know your decision. Or if you want somebody to contact you this week and pray with you and counsel you, please reach out to us and let us know. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your great love for us. Thank you for the fact that we can trust that you do forgive us, Father. To trust and know that when we walk through those times of grief and sorrow and we have to lay our loved ones to rest, that you are there. When we mess up and we make mistakes and we sin, you are there. And as we approach that day when our time has come, when we grow weak and frail, 
that you are there to help us to leave behind a lasting legacy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.